What up, what up, what up, everybody? This is Double G for the Fight Game Podcast. We are here with a special Sunday night, Monday morning bonus episode of the show. Uh, No John tonight, but John and I will be back on uh, Thursday evening, Friday morning with our regular show. So the reason there's a bonus episode uh, this weekend is... I was able to uh, get a screener of the Dark Side of the Ring Chris Benoit episode. If you want the super inside, you know, wrestling version uh, of that review, I did that with uh, Big Dave Meltzer over the weekend on Wrestling Observer Radio. This one is a little bit more for a, a casual fan. Uh, my fiance, who is not a wrestling fan and had no idea the story even existed. I asked her to watch it and and to do the uh, the show with me because I think there's going to be some intrigue with this one with the non wrestling fans. If you as a wrestling fan have a significant other who is not a wrestling fan, uh, Crystal uh, gives her thoughts as a non wrestling fan that are pretty interesting actually. So uh, we don't we try not to spoil too much. I mean, if you don't know the story, you might get spoiled a little bit with our conversation. But, uh, you know, we tried hard to not really spoil too many of the details, Uh, but just a a warning for those who are just completely anti, you know, spoiler information. There's going to be some information in there. Um, And then also uh, in the second part of this show. We have uh, Robert Silva who joins me. It's it's an interview that we recorded uh, over the over the last week. Uh, we, I, I'd thought about putting it on uh, Thursday's show, but we had too much stuff to talk about, so I just added it to uh, to the bonus show. And we talked about Meldrick Taylor and Julio Cesar Chavez, the 30th anniversary of their historic fight. Chavez comes from behind, stops him in the 12th round with two seconds left. Richard Steele waves it off because Taylor does not uh, answer. His question, basically. So, uh, Robert and I will be back. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is this episode is sponsored by our great sponsor, Bet Online. You'll hear uh, a little bit more about them in in a bit. They've uh, they've changed the um, the bonus that they're giving out for for folks. So, you want to listen to that. And uh, yeah, John and I will be back Thursday. So hopefully you enjoy this bonus episode and we will be back Thursday and, you know, we're going to try to do some other stuff. I even recorded a special interview that I'm not ready to talk about, but we'll be ready to talk about it probably on Thursday with uh, someone that you all might be pretty interested in in hearing from. So uh, let's get on with the show. Okay, before I introduce the guest, I want to give people just a background idea of why we're bringing this person on for the show. So I was given a copy of the Dark Side of the Ring episode one on Chris Benoit, and I thought about the different ways I would have to talk about this story. Did a podcast with Dave Meltzer last night, so if you're a subscriber to Wrestling Observer Figure Four, you'll hear that. That's definitely like super inside wrestling perspective of that story. And I thought, you know, who else can I talk about this with that gives a slightly different perspective? 
And in these social distancing times, the only person really in my life who I see on a daily basis and can have a conversation with is none other than my fiance, my significant other, my better half, Crystal. So Crystal, welcome to the Fight Game Podcast. Hello, babe. How are you? (laughs) So when I asked you, I said, do you know what this story is? Chris Benoit, he's a WWF wrestler. WWF at the time. Don't know, WWE at the time. Um, did you you know, did you ever hear about this story? And you hadn't, which surprised me, but I guess it shouldn't surprise me because you live in a real world in the real world and I <laughs> live in this weird wrestling bubble. I had never even heard of this guy's name. So, uh yeah, I I guess it was a big story, but I literally could not picture this person or didn't even know his name. So uh, it was very interesting, though, to watch. Okay, so just give people a little bit of the background of how you even know what wrestling is. Like, you have a very kind of view of it that, you know, is is kind of interesting. (laughs) Um, I only have ever watched wrestling other than with you in the limited time that I've watched it with you. Um, I think in about 2003, 2004 uh, in South Korea where it was WWF I believe right at that time um, yeah I, I forget when they switched it from come on, the F to should, the E you should know this come on <laughs> um, and I taught in a boys high school and they were super into it then so I would watch it then um, just to so I could be kind of in the know with those guys but after that no did not watch it at all so this is all new to me and I am not a huge fan. So, so know. that so that guy, the the guy that the, the, the documentary is about, Chris Benoit. During that time frame, he would have been a pretty big player at that time. So, even if you didn't see him yeah. or you don't remember him, he was definitely involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the the reason why I actually wanted to talk to you about this is because, with with you coming into this thing completely blind of the story. I kind of was just wondering how it affected you because for me, I can go back to those moments in 2007 when it happened, when they talked about they were doing the TV show and the TV show was very much about celebrating his life. And as the TV show's going on, they realize that he's the one who did all these really bad things. So I remember that time frame, and I was reading the Wrestling Observer every, you know, Dave said back in the day, we would get the newsletters, uh, actual physical newsletters with the smallest print <laughs> with, you know, you, you would, you would, I would like fold it up into fours and just shove it in my pocket. Cause anywhere that I went, if I had some downtime, I was going to read it. Um, but that, that, that's what it was. So you're waiting at the mailbox and you get this thing. And during this time frame, it's a very sort of surreal story for wrestling fans. And I remember just being like jittery after, after it, uh, reading these stories. So, Anyways, um, I remember like where I was when I heard it, right? So for you, watching this uh, from beginning to end, uh, did you get a did? I don't imagine that you felt as surreal because you didn't know the story. But what, like, how did it just seem like a normal like true crime documentary or something? Like, how did you feel watching that? So just recently, we had watched the O.J. Simpson thing. Right. And then what's the Patriots player, Hernandez? 
Aaron Hernandez. Aaron Hernandez. So we had just watched both of those like fairly recently. So that's immediately what I sort of thought is CTE came to my head like right. almost immediately. But I was like, no, wrestling's not real. Like they don't really get hit in the head. So what is this? So I actually learned something by watching this because God, they are hitting their heads with those steel chairs apparently like for real or at least they used to. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't surprised when that former wrestler who's now like a neurologist or whatever mm-hmm. came on to say it was CTE. So that was just super interesting. I did learn something about at least past wrestling, right? That they really did get really injured. Right. Now, was that, was watching this show, was it any more grisly or any more like scary than any of the other ones that we'd watched together? Yeah, because there was a kid involved, right? right? So that hits me as a mom and as a, you know, educator, like that's what hits me. I'm sure a lot of people, like the kid was seven or something. Like, oh my gosh, so terrible. So I think that was a bit more grisly. Also the fact that it took place like over three days apparently, Mm -hmm. like wasn't like a crime of passion um, or it didn't seem that way. So yeah, I think it was a little more disturbing. Yeah, so... um Overall, as far as the, I guess, the quality of the documentary, even though it was about wrestling, like, were, did you feel that it engaged you? Like, if we were to say to people who don't, who are sort of in the same shoes as you, who don't really know the wrestling piece, um, you know, I know I was talking to a couple of guys and, and their significant others also do not follow. And the question is as well, would they be interested? Do you, I mean, do you think this is something that other folks would, in your shoes would be interested in? I think so. If if they're interested in true crime stories, I think it's just as good as any other, you know. And um, I think that because it's, you know, taking place kind of in America and middle America and all of that, then people can kind of identify with, with all those things. So, um, yeah, I think so. So what did you think about, now this is something that you didn't know about the story, but the documentary, the episode opens up with a young man who looks eerily like Chris Benoit, his son David. Now for wrestling fans, we know of David, have not really seen him other than we just see him pop up on Twitter. We know, you know, he had wanted to wrestle Chris Jericho, who is a big part of this documentary, he actually has looked out for David in the past because I think he knows that, unfortunately, because David looks a lot like his dad, like he probably gets a lot of, you know, bad stuff said about him. But did you like it? Did you get that he was kind of unseen to to the, even the wrestling world? Like, did that did, was that point clear, or did or did it just seem like he was just part of the story? Yeah, I, of course, knew nothing about this guy at all. I really, really felt for him, of course. Um, But I think I didn't really realize that he was kind of outside of the wrestling world until I think the interviewer asked, kind of like, has anyone from WWE kind of reached out? And he was like, Chris Jericho, and then the other guy. um, Chavo, maybe. Yeah. Um, I should have taken notes. (laughs) No, I didn't want you to take notes because I, I, I wanted the things that you remember. Yeah. You know, that's why I was taking notes, all the notes that I took. Yeah, so I think that that was kind of really poignant, right? That that he kind of felt um, left out or, or forgotten. But also the guy from WWE, the representative that was sent to the funeral, mm-hmm. they, kind of like, they kind of like pushed him out. Like, right. why are you here? They, they, like, so 
um, Sandra, who is Nancy's sister, uh-huh. Nancy's little sister, um, and David's aunt, was saying that how the she had no connection with him anymore, and and he knew her as I forgot the nickname he had her, but that was he considered her his aunt, even though he was like step. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the end. When they when they kind of reconnected, I thought that was a very nice moment. Um, but did like from that perspective for you watching, you obviously didn't know the previous relationship. So I was just wondering if because I'm I'm sure to wrestling fans and to me who kind of the story because I've um, I have an interesting I, I don't know Sandra, but I. Um, I interviewed somebody, or I did a, I did a podcast years ago with someone who was connected with her in this story in some way. It was a, a woman who uh, was I forget she she did a interview piece for a website or something, and so I interviewed the woman, but I didn't interview Sandra. Sandra and I follow each other on Twitter, which is you know you, that happens. So I always, but whenever I hear Sandra's name, I always immediately think of someone who's like really nice person like really loved her big sister so i have i have a very uh i have a lot of sympathy for her so to me like that part of the story really tugged at my heart but i i couldn't tell if that mattered as much to you watching it well yeah but i was confused as to why her and david like lost touch like she said we didn't have each other's phone number like in in 2020 like how is it so yeah. hard to find each other and why yeah. did they need this documentary to get yeah you know I, that's an interesting question and i think it may have something to do with um maybe david's grandfather's very overprotective at this point and was just trying to make sure that david didn't get sucked into this wrestling bubble because sandra very much comes from the wrestling bubble she's still in contact with people in wrestling uh and and that could have been it i, I don't i don't have the answer to that but yeah the, it could have been explained a little bit better for sure i think you're right though i think they did mention something about the grandfather not wanting or not responding when she reached out or something yeah that might be right what did you think about how wwe was portrayed I think that, I mean, what was just interesting is the, like you said, the response when they did that big tribute and then, you know, the next day they had to back it up. Yeah. Um, and was it Jim Ross that was like, you know, we were just wrong, like yeah. we shouldn't have done that, you yeah. know? So I think that they recognized it. I mean, I don't know how it was portrayed then, but to me it seemed like, oh, we we kind of messed up here and you know, we should have kind of waited, but um, I don't know how it was kind of seen then I'm Mm -hmm. guessing not so well, (laughs) but yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing is, is now because this happens on their watch, there's tons of public scrutiny. What wasn't mentioned in the documentary is that when Benoit, actually I can't remember if this piece was mentioned or not, but when Benoit, dies and they do the toxicology reports he's got like so many number of times the amount of testosterone in his body than a normal human being yeah yeah they said that yeah he had uh other stuff there was other xanax or there was like other things in his system at the time and so WWE has a drug testing policy for performance enhancing drugs and Chris Jericho mentions like I don't know how anyone passes that, right? 
But what Benoit had, and the reason why he was able to pass it, is he had what is called a uh, therapeutic use exemption. So because he had used steroids throughout his entire younger career, his body wasn't creating natural testosterone anymore. Oh. So now he needed the synthetic testosterone to just sort of function. But what happens is, is these guys, they take advantage of it because they're like, oh, I can just get it from a doctor. It's like a, you know, it's like a note to the teacher from the doctor that excuses me from school. And so he just continued to dial it up. And so, you know, whether, so I think, you know, the, the sort of the conclusion of this story is, was it CTE or was it roid rage or was it depression you know they mentioned the the stuff with him and eddie guerrero where he's just constantly crying and Mm, depressed and doesn't know how to grieve um and just this whole you know how many things and it's probably everything right there's not one smoking gun as to why he flipped his wig but um yeah and so that that's like part of the story that isn't really i mean it's kind of hard to tell too in in this narrative style because you don't want to go too inside of that world um but if they had a few a little bit more time i would have liked to see that a little bit more but going back to 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 wwe they had to kind of now play defense because all this information comes out you have this program how's this guy fail you know how's this guy not getting caught and it's like well, he's got a therapeutic. Well, how many other people have these therapeutic use things? And so it really opened up uh, inside of this sort of dirty business of pro wrestling. And so they had that that they had to kind of defend. And then they had to defend now the CTE stuff. Oh, now, like all of a sudden, you know, years back, you see all these guys getting hit in the head with steel chairs we sort of knew that was wrong back then, but now here's proof that brains are being affected. And you could, I mean, boxing, you know, that you, you've seen over the years, football. We know this, but when it's when nothing happens in present time, you can kind of like, oh, well, you know, maybe they get dinged up in the head. And so they had to defend themselves against all of these different accusations. And they came off at that time, and I, but I don't know if it came off in the documentary like this, so completely insensitive to the outside world. And it was like, yeah, Chris Benoit works for us, but he's a terrible person and he's gone and we we wash our hands with him. And I get that part, but they also did not really take any responsibility to the outside media. Now they change policies and, and, and stuff, but it's not like people aren't taking steroids now like that. I'm sure that's still part of the game. But uh, yeah, I just didn't know if, if that stuff came through in the documentary. Well, yeah, I saw, you know, they said we're not allowed to even say his name and all that, but they didn't mention the therapeutic testosterone mm-hmm. in this, so I didn't know that part. They just said, like, he had 10 times the amount of testosterone in a normal human male or whatever. But, so, I don't know. I mean, it it could be that, but the CTE can definitely cause, you know, the extreme emotionality that he was showing after... Mm-hmm. Eddie, Eddie died again. I should have taken notes. Um, so all of that, you know, could be related. And I'm guessing just from what we know about CT, that it was probably that, especially if they said his was really, really advanced, um, for his age. But you don't really see like, let's say his brain was, you know, twice the age of, of normal or whatever. I mean, our 80 year old 
men with dementia like killing people like that that's the part that's hard because that, that's why i said there's no like one smoking gun like it's probably a bunch of you know what wh- whether the cte is the biggest part of that i don't i don't we'll, we'll never know but um interesting i mean it's interesting to think about and you can probably you know think about it uh and waste a lot of time thinking about it and and going through a rabbit hole and really not coming to you know, the conclusion that you might want to. Well, I mean, and so many football players, boxers, wrestlers now, apparently, probably do have CTE and are not murdering their families. And so, yeah, that's a definite point. You know, we can't necessarily blame that. But we, I mean, I don't know enough about CTE to say, no, that couldn't be it. Or yes, it could. I mean, maybe it's a combination, right? Yeah. Steroid use and CTE and his best friend just died. I mean, that's kind of a trifecta. What did you think about their relationship as it was portrayed? I mean, it was kind of interesting, right? They started out kind of hating each other. And then I'm not really sure how that relationship developed. It, they kind of glossed over that. Yeah. They, I mean, they just were wrestling each other so much that it all of a sudden turns into some partnership. Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, I guess I don't maybe... I think you had said before, like wrestlers, they kind of like, you know, plan out their routine or whatever. They kind of know. Some some definitely do more planning than others. But back then, like people would equate it to like a dance. Like, you know, certain things, but you're reacting to the crowd and the chemistry that you have with that person so that they know what you're thinking Mm -hmm. about what you want to do is that's part of it as well. And, 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 you know, it's not there's a lot more planning out things today as far because they they uh people know what works and what the crowd wants whereas back in the day there was less of it but there was still it was still part of it um but yeah i'm sure you know they 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 just realized that they had fantastic chemistry in the ring and they knew you know what each other was thinking about what they wanted to do hold on can i ask a side question on that note yes if if so much is to do with the crowd what's happening now like with no crowds they're having these wrestling shows right that you are like cringing every time you have to watch them it's so frustrating watching that stuff yeah what do they do though do they just have to plan it out totally beforehand they are trying to do the same thing that they would do a, a lot of them in front of a crowd and it's absolutely tone deaf and not working but i don't know what would work like one of the other companies you know what's interesting is jericho and jim ross um they are not and dean malenko they are not with wwe anymore they are now with the opposition aew oh really so uh you know they they're yeah that 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 show is less tone deaf to the fact that you know we're in this reality of what we're into but it's still not great you know it's not like it is with the you know you've taken 50 percent of the game out of it and you're not going to be it's not going to be super like I, I i know i have friends who are like lifelong wrestling fans and historians who are like it's not the same i can't watch it just depresses me what does dave think is he watching? He's very open-minded. You know, he he understands the the plight of the wrestlers. You know, he talks to wrestlers. He talks to the management. Uh, you know, he may he doesn't talk to Vince anymore because you know Vince is is hot and cold with with that kind of stuff. But he's got people he talks to in in WWE too, and and he he's very sympathetic to the plight of the wrestlers who are kind of put in a, a no win position really. And the best ones, the ones who are so good at their craft, they can get something out of it 
and and they can be creative but the ones who are more about you know pointing to the crowd and getting a crowd reaction it's just like they have to like sort of reinvent themselves and i think they're a little bit scared to reinvent themselves because if it doesn't work then it maybe shows that they may not be as good as people are led to believe yeah because you said they're like contractors right like if they don't fight they don't get paid so that makes sense. yeah i mean they have like a what you would call a downside so you have like a bare minimum like if if nothing happens and you get hurt like here's your bare minimum and then but if you do work you get all these incentive bonuses and stuff so i don't know how they're getting paid today but if they're if the company is not making money off of the crowds i'm sure it's less you know they're still making money off of tv but these TV companies, how are, how are you able to sell advertising today? So, the, you know, it's a whole sort of trickle down of, of everything. No, oh, it's very interesting. Sorry, that was a side note. I went off. I went off your notes. No, no, yeah, I know. I, I'm actually the one who threw the threw the conversation uh, off. But uh, back to Guerrero and Benoit about their relationship. It, it was interesting the way that it was portrayed to me as far as uh, how close they were and how Chris reacted when he died. Uh, but I didn't know how that played to you. I think it was um, they more portrayed the his reaction when they died more than like their actual friendship. But I guess that makes sense, right? Because the whole story is really about later. Um, but yeah, I I was kind of surprised when um, they talked about how extreme his reaction was. But again, that probably has a lot to do with the things that were going on in his brain and body. But what, what did you think of Eddie's wife who? She also used to work for WWE, and back when Eddie died, um, she became a character on the show, and they started to utilize her a lot more. Um, you know, as a, I'm sure, as a as a you know, WWE capitalizes on this stuff in a weird way, but also to make sure that she had you know some money for for her family. She had a, she had a young family back then, and uh, but I, I thought she came off really really well um, considering all the heartache in her life, you know? I actually really liked her. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure what her role was in WWE. I mean, it talked about how she was um, in a meeting when they talked about Chris and stuff like that, but I, they didn't really say what she was doing. Was yeah, she, she like was a, a character. Yeah, thing? she was, she was a, at some point, she was a, uh, like a general manager on the TV show. So she would come out and, you know, tell people what to do as a character. But she, you know, this is not like she was, she had a, stake in the company she was just a character portraying like mm. a general manager so interesting yeah it's kind of like they were talking about nancy benoit's uh role and char- different characters that mm-hmm. she played yeah, and- she would have been what they would have called a valet back in the day like you know we're talking early mid to late to late 80s they don't have valets anymore really in wrestling and, and the valet's role was to well so they call it getting heat so you want the crowd, you want to manipulate the crowd to be really frustrated and upset at the bad guy, right? Because then you want them to be really inspired to, 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 for the good guy to win. And so the valet would be used to help incite that for the bad guy. And uh, so Nancy's role, when they talked about Kevin Sullivan, she, you know, they had this sort of sa- satanic um, character. And so her, you know, you have this really attractive woman with this satanic guy and she's part of his act. And it's just part, it's just to try to make him even, you know, more of a bad guy to the, to the fans. 
Yeah, they were saying, I think that after she died that they didn't really have a role like that again. Is that is that right? Well, it became a little passe for sure. Um, the the role today is not really there. Um, there's not a lot of managers in general. So you, you'd have the same thing with an older man being the manager of the bad guy. And his role was the same way, but he would get the, the heat differently. They still have managers, but you don't see a lot of valets in the same way. And it's it's also because it's like a it's a very seventies and eighties thing, right? And the world has changed, and so you don't want to portray the role of of women in that same way in, in today. Were there things like that in women's wrestling too? Like were dudes the valets or? <sighs> um, that's a good question. I don't. So women's wrestling is is sort of a, another topic on its own as far as the value of it. Um, it was more looked at as like special. So like, you know, you have the, the, the wrestling card and the special attraction matches, the one woman's match that you would see. And so it was never really like the biggest part of the act, at least as far as when I, when I started watching. Now, the women are so athletic and they're brought up and developed to wrestle just like the guys were are which was never the case they didn't want the women to be like the guys but today with the women's evolution in wrestling um there are some really good wrestlers now in japan it's a little different you know over the years i'm, I'm just mostly talking about the u.s but yeah like i, I don't remember if uh, if guys were were managing the women as much i mean I'm sure it has happened, but it wasn't really a, a function of, of wrestling for, for as far as I know. I think that um, you have said before, like wrestling is like the original reality show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just find that. I don't know. I think that you are very into reality TV, mm -hmm. as hopefully most of your listeners know. <laughs> um, and uh, so I have been watching it more since we've been uh, together. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, it's kind of just, uh, I think maybe it's becoming a little more interesting to me, this this notion of this being a reality show, but never said that it's a reality right. show. Like, and, like the way that I used to equate it um, when I was growing up as I used to watch, I'm not, I, I wasn't really that big of a fan of, of them, but my mom would watch soap operas. And I was, so I'd watch these things and everything is so easy to see coming because a soap opera is really written for a very casual audience. You, you want someone to get sucked into a soap opera, whether it's day one or day 1000, you know, some of these soaps are, are such, such longevity. And so you have to create these very easy to understand stories. I think pro wrestling is the same way when it's done right. The very easy to, to understand stories are really captivating and, and you know, the, then, then the audience grows. And when they can't do that, then the audience shrinks. And so we're at a time where the audience is shrinking because they're not really effective at uh, these storylines that, that captivate more than just the hardcore fans. I think I like that analogy better, the the soap opera because that that seems like much more apt for that but it's also just these these people are really really amazing athletes too yeah. and really actually hurting themselves for this so it's just it's just very interesting i don't know yeah there there's um <clears throat> i talk to certain guys in the business and it is really like a passion and a hunger and a craving for a performing in front of a, an audience 
but also just that this business is um, something that they can they can grasp. Like you know, in my world and in your world, the business of what we do is is a lot different. But grasping the business of professional wrestling, you know, it's sort of like uh, sleazy at some points. You know, it's uh, but trying to be uh, successful in that business, I think, is is really is really something that catches these guys. Like, ah, you know, it's a way for them to sort of level up and level up and see if they can become great at it and make money. But it's also it it it's very sad for some of these guys at the end because you know, think about it. If you're 25 and you're in great shape, great genetics, and this is part of the documentary, and I'll, I'll bring it back to documentary. But when you're 40 genetically your body's not going to look the same you're getting older and this was part of what they were saying about chris in that as he was getting older he that's you know he was even more into the steroids because he needed his body to look younger and historically in wwe they phase people out once they get to that age no matter how good you are and so i think that was also part of his worry was that he was going to get phased out and he and that was spinning in his head, like, how, what's my next step? But by then, he's already, you know, mentally gone. They didn't really talk about that part, though. So I think, you know, me watching it with no background, really, um, you know, that kind of information would be helpful to know. Yeah. I mean, they don't really talk about it. Do you think that this was really geared toward wrestling fans, though? I mean, who Very know much the so. background Very already. much so. Yeah, so that's tricky for a documentary, right? If you want to uh, pull people in or new people, you know, it's tricky to, to leave out. I mean, I, th- I think what their hope is, is exactly what we're doing, which is... Being y- on a podcast. Well, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, you come into this with fresh eyes. I come into this knowing like every nook and cranny of the story mm-hmm. and really that, I mean, I'm not bragging in any way, but because I have Dave as a resource, like I know like every nook and cranny of this story as far as what's out there. Um, I'm sure Jericho and Chavo and those people who were closer to the situation, they, I'm sure they, you know, they know uh, more, but that's, that's uh, I'm, I'm sure that's what they're banking on is people, is you know, me, saying, hey, do you want to watch this? And then drawing, you know, the 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 significant other piece of the audience. Is this going to be like on, do you know where it's going to be released at all? So it's coming out on Tuesday on uh, the Vice Network. Oh, okay. So we, we got the screener, but it, yeah, it is coming out on, on Tuesday. So um, they're doing a bunch of different ones too. And I, I don't know if you'll like all of them. This I, I thought this one would be sort of the best one because we had just watched stuff like this prior but yeah they're doing a bunch of them uh, uh, but this is this is kicking off their second season yeah vice i think is good because um it maybe reaches a wider audience you know if it's just on espn or something those 30 for 30 things you know it's a little bit maybe more nuanced well to some extent though i think vice would wish that they could draw the same numbers of audience that espn ESPN could (laughs) Uh, okay well i think i think we're good uh, was there anything else you wanted to add about it? Like, if you were to give it a, a rating, like, as far as oh, how well to, it was done. <laughs> you like to rate movies. Let's see. Uh, is it out of five? Or out of ten, or out of a hundred, or whatever you want. <laughs> I'm going to say a three and a half out of five. Okay. Definitely 
I would recommend. If you do like true true crime and or wrestling, then I think it's it's good. I think you know somebody like me can definitely watch it and enjoy it if you like those things. All right, we will take a break, and I will be back with Robert Silva to talk about Meldrick Taylor and Julio Cesar Chavez's first fight. We have just surpassed the 30th anniversary. This is an interview that I recorded with Robert earlier in the week, so you know we may make references to stuff that happened earlier in the week, but um, I hope you enjoy. Let's talk about our sponsor, Bet Online. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner still has hundreds of sports events and games to wager on, or let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack. All open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. If you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the weather. I am knee deep in this year's Survivor, and I've put some bets down on folks who I think have good odds and a good chance to win. So I'm all in. And also, American Idol, once it starts in the uh, sort of the countdown and people get eliminated, I'm all in on betting on American Idol as well. So visit their website and join today to receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. That is have, that is that has been increased from past weeks. So just I want people to understand that. Be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE. Bet online, your online wagering experts. All right, we're having Robert join us. It is the 30th anniversary of the very first Meldrick Taylor and Julio Cesar Chavez fight. And who better to talk about this than uh, Robert Silva? First off, man, I just, you know, just want to see how, how's everything going in your neck of the woods? Well, and New York City is in, a, is in a panic. Shout out to the Bay Area, San Francisco, and your hometown for following a great edict. I mean, I'm hearing that uh, San Francisco and the neighboring towns, um, they've set an example for the rest of the country. And I wish New York City would follow it. Right now, there's a bit of a tussle between Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio overdoing it, uh, doing the, the shelter in. And so right now, I'm, I'm still going to work as long as the subways are running. And you got a lot of people in panic. Yeah. Because they like, oh, why? why? When, look, I'm going to work if the subways are working, right? Subways don't work, then I'll stay home. But as right. long as the subways are running, I, I'm going to work. Because I run two storage warehouses, and there's no way in the world I could work from home. I can't put stuff in storage from home. I can't supervise that. Right. We have to be on site. But once the subways are shut down, we'll be shut down. Now, the people that own the storage company, what they're doing is they're having skeleton crews started tomorrow. Tomorrow will be the first skeleton crew. I run two warehouses, so I'm going back and forth between the warehouses, but I will only have one person per warehouse. And basically, while the subways are still working, I will well, I'll be going in and make sure everything is okay as far as no, no fire hazards and no one breaking in. But a lot of our customers have canceled deliveries and pickups and stuff to go into storage because I don't blame them. I don't want anybody coming in my house during Absolutely. this pandemic. 
during this pandemic. <laughs> so <clears throat> we'll get to the Chavez and Taylor thing in a second. But I mean, because this is, you know, this is real life stuff. So mm-hmm. in your lifetime, the things that I can think of that maybe and one of them you'll have an absolute complete memory of. And the other one I'd be interested in. But obviously 9-11. Mm-hmm. And what about when uh, the Bronx was burning? Okay, when the Bronx was burning, that was ongoing throughout the entire decade of the 1970s. It's funny you brought that up. I, um, At the time that the Bronx was burning, and we're talking about 1977, 1978, which was the peak of it, I was living on 169th Street and Sheridan Avenue. And this is 1977, 1978. We moved into that neighborhood in 1975. When we moved into that neighborhood, it was a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. And every tenement was up and thriving. A lot of Jewish landlord owners and Jewish store clerks and merchants, because of uh, the proliferation of Puerto Ricans coming into the neighborhood, they got scared. And they set their places on fire to collect their insurance and left. Meanwhile, the media blamed it on the Puerto Ricans coming into the neighborhood. Now, why the hell would I want to come into the neighborhood or my parents would want to start setting things on fire? We just moved in there. It didn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. It was the merchants and the landlords that did that. They got their fire insurance uh, uh, money. And true, a true story, true note, true fact. Beginning in the early 80s and for many years, not till the 90s, fire insurance in the in the South Bronx, especially was at a high, high, high premium. Now, why would you do that if you're not if if you're not doing it? The the tenants or the people living in the area are supposedly doing it. By the time we moved out of there in 1978, we were the only building left in a two block radius that hadn't been set on fire and burnt to the ground. It's crazy. Yeah, but that was ongoing throughout the 70s. Now, as far as crisis, you got 9-11, of course. You've got this. And then the two blackouts I lived through in 1977 and 2003. 1977, when the blackout happened, August of 77, it was chaos. And I remember the minute the lights went out, the next morning, my father coming uh, home with two color televisions that... Uh, <laughs> He broke into a a, a store and, and and got, but um that that was mass chaos back in seventy seven. I, I may have been. I, I think I was conflating both of those events because yeah. that I think that's probably what I was what I was trying to yes. to wonder okay, about. The, the blackout of seventy seven happened during during the the whole uh, crisis in the Bronx throughout, and it was August of seventy seven, and throughout New York City, it was just. One uh, looter after looter, it was uh, uh, it was major havoc. It was the original purge. Yeah, I just, I was just listening to uh, Questlove's podcast, and I, I was I'm going through the old ones because for a, the longest time he was on Pandora, and I actually couldn't get an RSS feed to listen to like when I'm driving and stuff. You had to listen through Pandora, and so just recently, I think it's like in December. 
he went to iHeartRadio, and so okay. and so uh, now I could listen through just you know a normal whatever podcast service that I had. And so I'm I'm going back and I'm listening to the ones that I missed. And he had uh, Curtis Blow on, and they were talking about the blackout. So that's what made me think about it. So yeah, crazy, crazy time. So you know, in I mean, can you met? Do you remember? both events as far as like you know you mentioned the panic and and just your feelings and now you're you're uh, a, an older person so your thoughts are probably a little bit different and you're you know you're head of your own household and you're taking care of business in that sense but mm-hmm. you know just how does this feel uh, in comparison to some of those other moments where you remember well, there was heightened you know awareness around an event in 77, I was uh, nine years old, and we as a family were around the television watching uh, the Donnie Marie show <laughs> when the lights went out. It was like, oh, shit, what, what the hell What the hell's going on? And uh, my father goes outside, and he's like, oh, man, it's the whole neighborhood. Um, I'm, I'm going to check on my, on my father. Yeah, he went to go check on his father, right? He went to go get some TVs. But <laughs> it was hot Uh Garrett, it was 98 degrees uh, that 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 day, and it was hot, and we didn't, we were poor, so we didn't have any AC. And I just remember sitting, laying there, thinking, "Damn, it's completely completely dark." Now, 9/11 was a huge, was a totally different uh, story. It was just crazy, and it's funny that day. Remember that day? There was two highly anticipated albums that came out that day: the Blueprint came out that day and that morning I went to buy that album around 8 39 o'clock I went to buy that CD at a record store that was only 14 blocks away from the World Trade Center after I got that I got on the, um, I got on the bus to go to my to, to go to my job which was 15 blocks away on 29th Street when I got off the bus walking towards my build uh building where I worked at Everybody was outside. I was like, this is crazy. Why is everybody outside the building? Oh, before that, before that happened, while I was buying the rec, while I was buying Jay-Z CD and also that day, Babyface came out with a CD called Face to Face. I think it was his first CD on a new record label. Um, I forgot the name of the record label, but this was back in September 11th, 2001. Both those albums came out that day. As I'm buying those CDs, um... You ever heard of of this controversial uh, shock jock named Star from Star and Buckwild? No, uh, I know the duo. I, I didn't. Okay. I didn't recognize. Okay, them. yeah, they were on the radio at the time talking about oh another plane crash has happened. Now remember, Aaliyah had died just a few weeks before. Did, did Ali- Aaliyah's album came out that day too? I thought. No, uh, Aaliyah's album came out, I believe, a, a week or two later. Not that okay, day. Okay. Because I, I would have copped it that day as well. No, it didn't come out that day. But Aaliyah had just passed in a plane crash two weeks before that. And Star and Buck Wild were talking about how, oh, man, another plane crash happened. So I didn't think anything of it. I get outside. When I get to my job, you know, the, the, uh, the young ladies are crying. And they say, Robert, you got to see what's going on. We go, I go upstairs to the kitchen where we have the TV. And that's as the second plane was hitting the the the, the world trade the, the 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 other world trade center building. I was mm-hmm. like, wow! And it was so real. I walked 124 blocks that day home because uh, the subways weren't running, 
and the buses, the uh, the buses were packed like sardines. So I led a, I led uh, four women from my job, and I walked them. Now, I, at the time, I worked I, I worked on 29th Street and Park Avenue South in Manhattan. At that time, I lived in the South Bronx on 135th Street and Cypress Avenue. Now, to get there, you have to walk all the way up Manhattan, then cross over a bridge to get to the Bronx side. I went to go pick up my son that day, and my knees locked and, and buckled, and mm. I almost collapsed from all the walking I did. <laughs> when I... Yeah, it was, it was, and it, that day was also hot. It was, you know, it was, even though it was September 11th, it was a 90 degree day that day. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Crazy. Um, okay, let's talk about this this fight. Uh, 30th anniversary, you hit me up recently and said, hey, you know, there's, even though there's no live fights going on, there's uh, anniversaries coming up of some very important fights, and this was the yeah. one. So yes, I, I believe yes. it was uh, March 17th, 1990. Mm hmm. Meldrick Taylor, Julio Cesar Chavez, the first fight. Uh, what's interesting about this fight is did the Tyson Buster Douglas fight happen right before February, this one? Feb- February, February 11th or 10th? Um, it depends on what day you want to look at because the fight was in Japan and so, Japan yeah. is a, a day ahead of us. Yeah. So February 10th slash 11th, 1990 was the first. Uh, loss of Mike Tyson's career, and if you watch any, if you watch any of the sh- uh, of the shows, the 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 fight itself, the HBO broadcast, or the legendary nights, Jim Lampley brings up both times how yeah, this happened right after Mike Tyson lost his title to Buster Douglas. And you know, I'm, I'm bringing up the Questlove podcast again, but uh, he did an episode with Bobby Brown, and Bobby Brown is in Tokyo with Mike. Uh, yeah, they were uh, they were gangbanging uh, chicks together. Yeah. <laughs> Bobby Brown is telling Mike, "You need to kind of you know chill out. Like you got a fight coming up." And Mike is telling Bobby that uh, you know he he Buster Douglas is an amateur. He's going to take him out very quickly. And and obviously that didn't happen. Uh, okay, so um, this is an important fight for HBO because uh, Mike Tyson is their cash cow, obviously. But Julio Cesar Chavez is coming on as an, as a draw for them. So at, at this point, he's undefeated. He's got this, you know, uh, crazy record, though. You know, a lot of people would say that, that the record has, has a lot of uh, very easily winnable fights on it. Hey, before you continue, Garrett, and this is my opinion, it's, it's, it's not shared worldwide, but this is my opinion. Julio Cesar Chavez, in my opinion, is one of the most overrated fighters in the history of boxing. I'll give he's a he's a great fighter, no doubt, but he's been immortalized as many people consider him the greatest Mexican fighter, the greatest Latin fighter. I cannot call you the greatest Mexican or greatest Latin fighter of all time when you have no defense whatsoever. His defense was his chin. Yep. His chin. And you saw in this fight. He lost 10 of these 11 rounds going into the 12th round. He took a massive amount of punches. He was outpunched 3-4-1. to one. It was his chin. He was never hurt in this fight. Chavez would walk through your punches. But if you were a master boxer, a la Meltrick Taylor, a la Pernell Whitaker, he was tailor-made for you. But he made sure to avoid these guys until he had to fight him. If you look at his record, 
He beat a bunch of bums. A bunch of bums. And then when he fought good fighters, it was past their prime. He fought Hector Camacho when Camacho was done. Camacho was just a runner. Um, he never gave Pernell Whitaker a rematch, and that was a highway robbery. Highway robbery. Never gave him a rematch, uh, but then cried when Oscar De La Hoya bloodied him. And, oh, I want a rematch. <laughs> De La Hoya gave him a rematch and beat the hell out of him even worse the second time. Uh, Frankie Randall schooled him, and then they robbed Randall in a rematch. Chavez was a great fighter, no doubt. I've got him as the fifth greatest junior welterweight, super lightweight of all time. But he's, to me, he's not as great as people point him out to me. And the perfect analogy for today is Triple G. Very, very similar career-wise to Julio Cesar Chavez, where he beat a bunch of bums. But does not have that signature win against a legendary fighter. You look at Chavez's record, he has never beaten a legendary fighter. He's got good wins. Edwin Rosario was a good win, but Edwin Rosario is not a legendary fighter. Brad Whitaker, he was, uh, Whitaker was robbed. And Taylor should have been, but was not a legendary fighter. And we'll go into that because of what happened in this fight. So I just want to put that up right, right out there. Great fighter, no doubt, but he's not as great as Alexis Arguello was, Carlos Monzon, Roberto Duran, Salvador Sanchez, or Ricardo Finito Lopez. All Latin fighters that I rate above Julio Cesar Chavez. Those guys had all the skills of the world. Chavez, great body puncher, great chin, uh, a lot of stamina. But you got to have defense. He had no defense whatsoever. He would just walk right through you. Okay, so I think part of that reason why you are saying that he's overrated is because he got to fight on HBO. You got to see a lot of his huge mm -hmm. fights. Mm -hmm. And HBO really put their promotional... Uh, you know, their promotional backing behind him. And and so thus, a lot of people in this time frame were watching Julio Cesar Chavez fights and, you know, he was propped up as the greatest of, of all time or the greatest of this era, which I think is fair if you, if you are a fan watching this from this time frame, which means HBO did a great job because they made a lot of money off of him. Well, and they and they followed that same formula with Triple G twenty years, twenty to twenty five years later, without a doubt. And HBO has done that throughout its entire existence when they promoted and broadcast boxing. They did it with several heavyweights. They did it with Chris Ariola when he was a fat stiff. They they did it with uh, Michael Grant where he was a green heavyweight. Where they put their promotion their, their promotional machine behind you and make you look better than what you are or were. Uh, Triple G is a great fighter, but he's not what. Uh, and even Max Kellerman recently said uh, admitted to yeah we. Uh, HBO was behind the machine. Yeah, uh, we, we promoted him, and we made him look better than, than he was. I'm surprised he said that, but he's with ESPN now. And you know what's funny? He's doing the same thing with Tyson Fury. <laughs> but I, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's funny how you go wherever you go, wherever he's gone, he's, um you know, picked up the bandwagon. But, yeah, uh, Chavez, and then as bad as HBO was, Chavez after 1990 went with 
uh, Mike Tyson and Don King to Showtime. And you and if you thought HBO was bad, at least HBO, when they broadcast his fights, Jim Lampley was very impartial. He wasn't biased towards Chavez. Uh, Freddy Pacheco, you would have thought Julio Cesar Chavez was his oldest son. <laughs> he, oh, he could see nothing wrong with Julio Cesar Chavez. So... Sugar Ray Leonard, at the beginning of this fight, they, they I think it was Lampley who asked him, he said, you know, who would give you more trouble, Chavez or Taylor? And Sugar Ray said that Chavez would because while he throws less punches, he lands a higher percentage of those punches. But he didn't mention the power because I think that that is also key here. Uh, you, you think of the guys who, who gave Sugar Ray trouble. Uh, you know, Duran, obviously. Duran landed, but Duran also landed with power. And this fight, you know, if you want to... Uh, if you want to look at like sort of a comparison, they were trying to compare it uh, while it was going on to Sugar Ray's fights previously, maybe, maybe with Duran. But I thought that was an interesting thing because he said, you know, Chavez is going to land more, uh, but he didn't necessarily say land with more power. And I maybe we were supposed to just assume that that's what he meant. But I thought that was an interesting thing for him to say at the beginning of the fight. Sh- Sugar Ray was being modest. He would have mopped the floor up with Julio Cesar Chavez. Chavez was Taylor made for Sugar Ray Leonard. Chavez, is, while a pressure fighter, does not throw the amount of punches that Roberto Duran did in his prime. Remember that fight? You covered it well in your uh, Four Kings podcast. Where And we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of that fight, but no need to do a podcast because you could go to, the, to, to, to this website and listen to the great podcast on that fight that you and Dewan did. Um, Duran threw punches and punches. Chavez was not a punches and punches type fighter. He was a slow starter who would use his chin and go to your body. And it's funny to say that the body punching in this fight did not affect Taylor. Meltrick Taylor in this fight outlanded Julio to the body, yep. which never happened before. You never saw that before. Chavez is one of the greatest body punches in boxing history. And Taylor, because he threw a lot of body punches, negated Chavez's body punches. Chavez would, if Chavez and Sugar Ray Leonard fought 100 times in their respective primes, he gets knocked out 100 times. Because Sugar Ray Leonard was a tremendous puncher and even quicker than Meltrick Taylor when it came to punching power and, and speed. No, no. But And he would knock out Taylor, too, because Taylor took too many punches for a guy like a Sugar Ray Leonard. The guys that gave Sugar Ray Leonard problems, Durant threw a lot of punches, and Thomas Hearns because of his length mm-hmm. and that jab. Like, we always talked about it in the podcast. We've talked about their fights and the podcast you did with doing on, on, on the, the Four Kings podcast. Uh, Thomas Hearns was a very bad matchup for Sugar Ray Leonard because of his jab and because of his length. Chavez is 5'7". Leonard is 5'10". He has a field day with Chavez all night long. So explain the strategy. They mentioned it in the beginning. Taylor wanted to fight in the middle. He wanted to move around a circle. He wanted to lay off the ropes. What is the what, what was that strategy and why was that the strategy for Taylor in this fight? The great Georgie Benton. Lou Duva, while he was a co-trainer, he was more of a cheater. Lou Duva was never the strategist. And, and while Duva was around, he had a great stable Garrett of trainers. Georgie Benton being the best. Georgie Benton was the one who 
who refined Pernell Sweet Pea Whitaker and Meltrick Taylor's careers. He was the main trainer. Duva was the cheerleader. Oh, come on, baby. Come on, baby. You got more gas in you. But it was Georgie Benton that was the brains behind that operation. It was Georgie Benton's strategy for Meltrick Taylor to fight in the circle, keep Chavez in the center of the ring, and stay off the ropes because... They saw the damage that Chavez did to Roger Mayweather. Rest in peace to the original Black Mamba who died yesterday. And uh, Edward Rosario, he batted him up against the ropes and forced both men to quit in their corner. They knew to keep him off the ropes, stay in the middle of the ring, and cir- keep circling Chavez, and they could land all night long. And Georgie was right. He landed all night long. Absolutely. Okay, so we get to the fight. And it's very apparent, and and the announcers are right on this. Taylor is first to to land. He's first to throw. He's moving. He's way more active, and he's out. Like you said earlier, he's outlanding Chavez. You know, three or four to one. But when you watch this back with twenty twenty uh, hindsight, like we have, mm-hmm. what what I wasn't looking for. I wasn't looking to score this. You know, it was very clear that Taylor was winning all of these rounds, especially you know one through seven or eight. What what I was looking for was if I could spot where the early damage was coming that we didn't really necessarily think about when we were watching this fight because we were thinking mm-hmm. about like, wow, Meldrick Taylor is really schooling Cesar, Julio Cesar Chavez. It is very clear when you watch it with those rose-colored glasses that Chavez isn't landing a lot, but when he's landing, he lands right on the button, and Meldrick Taylor eats a a few good shots all the way from the first round on, but he is so dynamic in these rounds that you don't even really realize that he's actually getting hit with good shots. And also, Taylor had a tremendous chin. And um, many reporters brought up, uh, if you if you saw the legendary Knights, uh, Bernard Fernandez and Jim Lampley talked about how he's a Philly fighter. And uh, shout out to B-Hop. B-Hop's the only Philly fighter I ever saw who didn't resort to Philly, Philly fighters' uh, tactics where he would brawl. The majority of Philly fighters, and I say over 90% of them, you get them into a dogfight, they're going to fight you back. B-Hop never had that mentality, which he's the ultimate Philly fighter. Um, Second round, Garrett, Chavez lands the right hand and he cuts cuts open Meldrick's mouth. Inside, uh, Meldrick begins to bleed from the lips and the mouth. That was the first significant right hand. And he kept landing that right hand, though not as often as Taylor, at least two or three per round on that, in that area. And Mm -hmm. then... The eyes begin to swell up because Chavez is very heavy-handed. Yeah, Chavez takes advantage of his chin. Now, one time in this fight was Chavez hurt, and he got hit with everything but the kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. Now, one time he was hurt in this fight. Okay, he, so yeah, so uh, by the fourth round, they they're icing Taylor's yeah. eye, mm-hmm. and. Did you see the shot that caused what I think was was uh, um, uh, what, what what the the eye the eye uh, the socket right like like there was oh oh uh, he uh, he they bro- he broke over the bone, over the bone. Bro- yeah 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 and that was in the fourth round that did was you, did you, it was a, 
It was a right cross. Right. So at that point, even, you know, when we're watching it live, when we're watching it 30 years ago, you don't really notice that, but you do notice the icing of the eye. Like, I didn't realize until... You know, you sent me some articles that that uh, yeah. that, that yep. were written to do for research. I didn't even realize that you could you could go all the way back to the fourth round for a significant injury for Meldrick Taylor. So that sort of puts you know when you start thinking about the fight in that way, his performance is even more ridiculous and insane and amazing than I even realized. Excellent point. He had two early injuries. The second round, his his inside of his mouth starts bleeding. From a right cross. Fourth round, right cross causes his orbital bone to be broken. So even though he's dominating, he's fighting with all this pain. Imagine the amount of pain, the mouth, the eyes, and both eyes begin to swell up. One 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 orbital bone is broken. And he's putting on a virtuoso performance. Like you said, considering the pain and the torment he was going through, that even ups the ante as far as the performance he put on. So Larry Merchant, uh, through six rounds, he says that he's got a shutout. He's got Taylor winning every round and pretty convincingly. But he makes a comment and he says he's pretty sure the judges don't see it this way. What did he mean when he said that? Exactly what he he, he wasn't missing words. Larry Merchant never missed words. Chuck Jampa actually had uh, Chavez winning six rounds to five going into the 12th and final round. I don't know where you find six rounds. I don't know where you find three rounds for Chavez in this fight. Yeah. I had a 10 rounds to one going into the 12th round. I gave Taylor the first nine rounds. I gave Chavez the 10th because Taylor was, was at punch himself out. But then the 11th, when they went in an incredible round, toe for toe, Taylor outlanded Chavez. So I gave Taylor the 11th round. But he totally spent himself after the 11th round. He had nothing left going into the 12th round. I don't know what Chuck Giampa was looking at. But also, Merchant might have been hinting at the fact that since Don King was the promoter of this fight mm -hmm. and Chavez is a king fighter, there could be the shenanigans going on. And I guess uh, Giampa got his got, got a nice uh, payoff for his scorecard. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's fast forward to the 10th round. And in the tenth round, I'm, I'm I'm now I'm looking for okay, where is Taylor's wear and tear? Where is the moment where I realize that he's not going to win this fight? It did not happen in the tenth because he throws like ten lightning fast punches in a row, mm. and I was like, oh my god, like this guy is you know at you you rewatch fight, you go okay, in the eleventh he's spent. And in the 10th, he's really tired, too. But he still has these moments mm -hmm. of just dynamic, insane ability uh, that shows off, you know, really how special that he was. And, you know, you can even go to the 10th round in a fight that he's going to get knocked out in where he makes Chavez look like the slowest fighter alive. Exactly. Exactly. And once again, I, I, I'm, I emphasize the point. It was Chavez's chin that won this fight. It was Chavez's chin and stamina that won this fight. Taylor threw so many punches that he punched himself out. I, I, it's, uh, it's unbelievable how the only thing I can uh, compare it to is the first Ali Frazier fight. 
where Ali landed an enormous amount of punches and Fra- couldn't hurt Frazier. Frazier kept coming. For- and then in the 15th round, he drops Ali with that spectacular left hook. Yep. Except there's a huge difference. In that fight, Frazier won the majority of the rounds. You yep. can't say the same about this. Yep. This fight, this, <laughs> But as far as a guy getting hit, keep coming and coming, and, and nothing bothers him, that's what it reminded me of the night that uh, Frazier beat Ali the first time. Where no matter what Ali did, he could not hurt Frazier. No matter what Taylor did in this fight, he could not hurt Julio Cesar Chavez. So I remember being, you know, I think I was 13 or something Mm -hmm. watching this fight. And, you know, even though, you know, I'm the half Mexican side of me, uh, you know, is supposed to root for Chavez here, but I was an 84 Olympics boxing fan. So I was rooting for Taylor in this fight. And let I me won- let me let me tell the listeners something about Garrett. All right, the majority of the athletes he loves and admires and idolizes are black. It's got <laughs> nothing to do with his Asian side or his Hispanic side. The majority of the the, the, the guys he loves are black athletes. All right, so which is which is rare, Garrett? It's because true. I mean it's which, true. Which is rare, Garrett? Because growing up as a kid, and you read that read this in the article, I always rooted for the Puerto Rican fighter. It wasn't until later on that I would look past a guy being Puerto Rican. Like, when Trinidad fought Hopkins, I was at that fight. I was rooting for Hopkins, and my Puerto Rican brother was like, oh, you fucking traitor. I said, no, Hopkins is the better fighter. He's gonna beat... I'm a big Hopkins fan. I like Trinidad. I love Hopkins. Yeah. But you, since day one, and I'm probably because you were a big San Francisco Giant and San Francisco 49er fan. And historically, the best athletes on those teams have always been black. But uh, shout out to you, man, because a lot of guys don't do that. They they go for their ethnicity. And maybe also help us because you're biracial. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I, and I, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area, which is the you know ultimate melting pot. So, yes, yes. Um, OK, so uh, as we get as we get to the 11th. I'm watching this fight, you know, again, you know, now 30 years later, and I'm thinking like, okay, where's the moment where I can sense that Meldrick Taylor is, is, is starting to lose it? He's starting to unravel. The only moment that I can gather is right at the end of the round where he kind of like gestures to the wrong corner. Like he loses his, his yeah. sort of sense of, of where his corner is. And Lampley like jumps out of his seat as if to say like, you know, Meldrick is exhausted by by just making an. You know, he 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 like literally had like half a step to to go one way, and then he's like, oh nope, it's it's over here. So that moment for Lampley looked like that was the moment where he's like, uh, this is you know, Meldrick Taylor's possibly you know hurt or or tired or whatever. But did you sense even you know thinking back to when you watched it live? Like I still, as a kid, I still didn't sense that Taylor was was going to be. You know, he just had one more round and he was just going to win the fight. Like, I still watch that and I go. I didn't. I didn't. By the way, before I mention when I sensed it, the Jim Lampley's favorite fighter in his entire professional boxing and amateur career as an announcer is Meldrick Taylor. He covered the 84 Olympics. He was uh, Howard Cosell's assistant in the 84 Olympics when it came to the box. He would call the lower level fights while Howard called all the main fights involving the American fighters. Jim Lampley loved Meldrick Taylor. And I got to give Lampley credit. Even though he's a huge Meldrick Taylor fan, he called, he predicted an 11th round Julio Cesar Chavez knockout going into this fight. 
Uh, and I'll talk later about a personal note between Lampley and Meldrick Taylor that happened after a, after the, the last big, probably the last big loss of his career. But I got to give Lampley credit. He was very, very impartial despite the fact that, A, Chavez was uh, being propped up by HBO as the next big superstar, which he did become, and him being a huge fan of Meldrick Taylor. And we mentioned this before, and I remember you tweeted how uh, someone was asking who you thought the star of the 84 Olympic team was, and you wrote down Mark Breland. Technically, Mark Breland was, but Mark Breland did not shine in those 84 Olympics like he should have. Breland struggled, but Meldrick Taylor shined, Pernell Whitaker shined, Evander Holyfield shined, even, yeah. even though he got robbed. He got screwed. Evander, he, he shined. I saw those guys, and my father saw those guys, and we're like, those are going to be stars, but Mark is going to struggle as a pro, and Mark did struggle as a pro because he had a shaky chin and stamina issues. But I, my father could tell, and Meltrick Taylor was the youngest and still is the youngest United States boxer to win a gold medal. He was only 17 yep. in 1984 when he won the gold medal in Los Angeles at the Los Angeles game. And in this fight, Garrett, he's only 23 years old. And look at him. He is special. He is special, but he was never the same after this fight. I knew he was in trouble with 57 seconds left in the fight, a minute left in the fight. He got hit by right hand by Chavez, and he did a spaghetti dance. And then, 30, <laughs> then with 27 seconds left, he got hit with another right hand. He And I was like, oh, uh-oh. And, and my father's like, uh-oh. We were like, uh-oh. We're looking at my girlfriend, and we're like, this doesn't look good. Hmm. And then with 17 seconds left, he gets hit with a spectacular right cross. Picture-perfect right cross that drops him in the corner. Now, I got to give Taylor credit. He got up at the count of five. The reason Taylor lost his fight, and I, until we did the research for this, I never realized this. All this time, I'm thinking he's he, he's completely out on his feet, and Richard Steele does the right thing by stopping it because he's not answering. No. Lou Duva got up and was, for some reason, gesturing to the referee or something happened. And Taylor is watching Duva while Steele is talking to him. Now, take it to the consideration. Steele is counting. Steele is trying to say, are you okay? He's looking at Duva, and you got a raucous crowd screaming. He's not hearing anything. Lou Duva cost Meldrick Taylor the fight. Okay, so, you know, when I, when I, ta- when I asked you, when did you sort of figure it out? I think in the 12th, Meldrick Taylor throws a right hand and he falls. He slips yes, from, from yes, the right hand. Yes, At yes. that moment, I was like, okay, this dude is is really tired. So let me ask you this question. Right before that 12th round, why is Lou Duva telling him he needs to win this round? Because three years earlier, per, uh, Pernell Whitaker got robbed against another Mexican fighter, Jose Luis Ramirez, where he totally he won 10 rounds in that fight and Ramirez wins the decision and Duva had to be held back from attacking the judges. I mean, they had to hold him down. He looked like he was going to kill somebody. That's why. And Duva mentioned that in the I believe in the Sports Illustrated article I sent you, he talked about that. And in the Legendary Knights, um, Lou Duva says that he told Taylor to dance, but that's he, absolutely not what happened. He misremembered that because you could hear it clearly. No, you got you go you got to go after this big guy. Yeah. No, no. And 
once again, du- Duva's not a trainer. Duva's a, Duva is a cheerleader. Duva shouldn't have been giving those instructions. It should have been Georgie Benton. Georgie Benton is the Matt was the head trainer. Duva was just, you know, while he was in charge and those guys worked for him, he, 99% of the time, let those guys do all the talking. Georgie Benton and um, his after Georgie Benton, his son-in-law, uh, top man, early signs of dementia. Uh, Tommy, another black trainer, his son-in-law was the main trainer. They would do all the talking, but for some reason, and I think the reason he did this was because he remember how Purnell got screwed. He's like, you, you got to go after him. I mean, technically, he was right. One judge, one having Taylor went in the fight, and it's funny how things uh things uh come back and bite you. Your experiences. Three years later, when Pernell Whitaker, who was putting on a master class against Chavez, gave away the 12th round by moving and running, that round cost him the fight and cost the draw. Had he gone after Chavez and outlanded him, he would have won the fight. It's like, it's, this dude was like, all right, let's not make the same mistake Meldrick did. Just, just move. <laughs> Absolutely. So what did you think of Steele's decision at that moment? And is that... Did that change over the years when you were able to see his perspective? You were able to hear more about it, uh, and and you were able to learn more about what happened. That night when we was watching the fight, my father and I both agreed that Steele had no choice but to, but but to stop stop the fight because Meldrick didn't answer. Are you okay? And you know, my girlfriend at the time is screaming, "Oh no, they 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 did him dirty." I said, "No, baby, they didn't do him dirty. He's not. He did not answer the day. My father said, "Yeah, first rule, you got to answer the referee." Now, I didn't realize then until a couple of days ago that he was distracted. Yeah, but still, there's no that and and that's his that's his excuse and is a valid excuse. Lou Duva blew the fight two two ways. His advice. Of telling Meldrick to go after him when Meldrick should have ran, and him getting up when, Mel- when Meldrick got up, he he gets up and he's screaming at the referee. Something was going on. I have to reread the article. Something was going on. He was pointing to, to I don't know what a Chavez's men or something. Oh, or maybe he might have been pointing to the fact that Chavez was not in the neutral corner. Chavez was basically about to pounce on Taylor. Yeah. He should have been in. He should have been in the neutral corner. So Steele messed up on that. But as far as stopping the fight, I can't blame Richard Steele. He looked at Taylor. Taylor had that blank look in his face. He d- he made the right call. Okay, so hypothetically, let's say Meldrick Taylor wins this fight. Richard Steele does not stop the fight. He wins. How does the trajectory of his career change? And, you know, they're going to probably run this rematch right back if he does win, and who wins that rematch? Meldrick Taylor was never the same as as neither was Julio Cesar Chavez. These two fighters were never the same after this night. This was the equivalent of the Thriller Manila in terms of damage done to both these fighters. Now, Chavez was able to hide it because he fought a bunch of bums in between real fighters. And he wasn't exposed again until three years later when Whitaker made him look even slower than how Taylor made him look in September of 1993. And then just a few months after that, Frankie Randall beats his ass and takes the, and the first official loss on Chavez's career, January of 1994. And from that point on, Chavez is winning some, 
losing a couple, winning some, losing a couple. Chavez is never that invincible fighter again that people perceived him to be. Taylor, right away, the effects were shown. Um, he fought uh, less than a year later, in January of 1991, he beat Aaron Superman Davis to win the WBA Welterweight Championship. Now, to answer your question, let's say still let's the fight continue. Taylor wins the split decision. Rematch, Chavez knocks out Taylor because Chavez is never the same after this fight. Never the same. He was never the same, and he suffered some horrific losses. He beat Aaron Davis. Then he defended against Glenwood Brown, and Glenwood Brown knocked him down twice. Glenwood Brown is a solid fi- fighter, but in his prime was not a pimple on Meldrick Taylor's ass, and he knocked down Meldrick Taylor twice. In 1992, Meldrick Taylor beat Glenwood Brown by decision but got knocked down twice. Then he fought Terry Norris, and Terry Norris gave him a four-round beating, uh, just a, a brutal beating. And then Halloween night, 1992, he loses his WBA title to Crisanto Espana, a solid fighter, but not maybe not even a good fighter because uh, in when he fought Ike named from the past, after beating Meldrick Taylor, Ike beat the hell out of him. When Meldrick took that beating and he was in the dressing room, Jim Lampley and him together were crying because they knew his career was over and they were consoling each other. That's how big of a fan Jim Lampley was because Lampley knew right then and there his career was over. The trajectory is this. Taylor's probably in the the International Boxing Hall of Fame today because he gets that win over Chavez, but his career is... He gets one more big money fight with Chavez at that time, and then he, he continues to get beat by other good fighters. He gets, and by the way, they fight again four years later in 1994, mm-hmm. and it's funny. Taylor's shot, but so is Chavez. Taylor was first six rounds. Taylor wins the first six rounds. Chavez doesn't start fighting to the seventh round and knocks him out in the eighth. Absolutely. So. Um, just to kind of put a put a bow on this, I know uh, Meldrick Taylor's career sort of uh, dovetails after this, and you know his his actual uh, livelihood does as well. Like you know, you see the videos of him; he's unable to speak very very clearly, but he fights for a long time. And I and I saw it was just a year ago where he got arrested for something. Yeah. Less than a year ago, it was like uh, we're in March now. It was April, May, June. Nine months ago, he got arrested. Hey, what, he I got mean, what, he got to some 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 confrontation in the street, and the police. He's lucky the police didn't shoot him. The police would do the. I guess because he's Meldrick Taylor, and the police probably knew the famous guy that lives in the neighborhood. They they finally calmed him down, but he was. He was, he suffers, and Margaret Goodman, the great doctor Margaret Goodman, talks about a legendary night. So he definitely has signs of brain damage, and you can tell by the way he talks and his actions since in the last, even towards the end of his career. You saw the interview he had in 2002. Oh my God, why they played that interview? I, I couldn't play that. I couldn't play that. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, no, uh, so one more thing before uh, before we get out of here that I wanted to ask you about, because it's timely. Uh, they have announced that more than likely Canelo and Triple G is going to happen in September. Now, Canelo is supposed to fight Billy Joe Saunders in May. I, 
I just that's, can't. I just can't see that, that happening. Fight, that fight's not happening. That yeah, fight's I, not I, I don't. I don't see it happening. M- that, much like you just said. Matter of fact, uh, the, the Triple G Canelo fight will probably be the first big because you we probably won't see Wilder Fury in July. The things are up in the air. The Olympics will probably get canceled. Major League Baseball may not. May not. <laughs> it may be the return of the strike here. <laughs> We're not seeing any of this stuff because, like we mentioned earlier, Garrett, things in the United States with this coronavirus is going to get worse before it gets better. And, um, and by the way, shout out to that job you and Dave did with uh, uh, Dr. Patel. Great episode. Dr. Patel said the same thing. What we're we talking maybe when things might get back to normal? June, July? Maybe? Yeah. I mean, I, if that, you know, that, that sounds like... Uh... It sounds like it sounds like a long time. It doesn't sound like, you know, this thing is going to be a month and, and we're going to be fine. So that that Billy Joe Sanders fight is not going to happen, whether it's England or Las Vegas. It's not happening. It's not happening. Um, Canelo's next fight will probably be against Triple G Mexican Independence Weekend, September. So uh, that's probably what was going to happen. And, uh, this time, Canelo knocks out Triple G. Triple G has no defense whatsoever. Derevinchenko hit him at will all the time. Triple G has a great chin. And very similar to Chavez, he would walk through you and knock you out. Canelo has the punching power this time to put an end to Triple G's career because Canelo's chin is just as good as Triple G's. Absolutely. Um, all right, man. So uh, I think. I think. Look, I want to mention Meltrick Taylor. Mel- Before you go, Meltrick Taylor, as far as skill wise going into this fight, at junior welterweight in the history of the super lightweight division, and I recently did my articles, talent-wise, he's the second most talented super lightweight in the history of the division. Not the second best. He's not even, probably not even top 20 because of how his career career was curtailed after this fight. Talent-wise, he would have given prior trouble, but prior still would have knocked him out. But he could have beaten all. He would have. He could have beaten Costa Zoo. He, he he was beating Chavez. All the other guys are uh, 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 Kid Pombali, Antonio Cervantes. He'd have beaten all those guys. He would. The only guy he couldn't have beaten was Aaron Pryor, and he could have definitely beaten Floyd Mayweather at 140 pounds. That Taylor that you saw, because he threw fast, fast punching power, and as good as defensive fighter as Mayweather is, Chavez, Taylor's coming at him. Taylor's coming at him. He would have been a huge, huge. It would have been very difficult for Mayweather to beat uh, Meldrick Taylor, that Meldrick Taylor that fought that night. All right, man. And, you know, and speaking of Floyd, he, he's had a couple of a uh, couple of bad weeks here, huh? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, shout out to Roger Mayweather, the the original Black Mamba, one of my favorite fighters of the '80s. When I first saw Roger Mayweather back in 1982. I thought, and my father the same thing. We thought we were seeing the next Thomas Hearns. The man was tall, great jab, and a right hand from hell. Uh, but you know, he had he had even he had even worse chin than, than, than Tommy, and he had worse stamina problems than Tommy. Uh, Black Mama's problem was his legs were too damn skinny. <laughs> but I mean, he was the one who developed Floyd Mayweather Jr. Floyd Mayweather Sr was a jobber to the stars as a boxer. And what other fighter did he train besides his son? Floyd, while, while Floyd Sr. was in prison, it was Roger that was training Floyd Jr. and teaching him everything. And 
I'd rather be learning from Roger than Floyd. Uh, the only thing that Floyd Jr. got from Floyd Sr. was the shoulder roll because Roger never did the shoulder roll. Mm-hmm. But offensively, the jab, the right cross, that all came from Roger. And what Floyd Jr. did was he combined the best attribute of his father, which was defense because his father had no offense whatsoever. And then Roger's offense, and Roger was a tremendous offensive fighter, put it together. And that's where you will be seeing an article I write about him on your website soon. And um, the next time we'll talk as far as anniversaries, the second greatest fight in the history of boxing, in my opinion, May 7th, 2005. This year is the 15th anniversary of the greatest fight of this uh, uh, century. Jose Luis Castillo versus Diego Corrales in a fight so great that you can watch that fight over and over and over again and never get tired of it. What a fight. And that'll be sometime in May. We'll be talking about that. The 15th anniversary of the Jose Luis Castillo versus Diego Corrales. Their first fight. And in my opinion, the second greatest fight in the history of boxing. Awesome. Well, all right, Robert, uh, throw out, throw out your Twitter handle, uh, before we get out of here. All right. And by the way, um, I do a podcast with my man Logan called World Championship Boxing. You guys can go to the Apple Podcast and, and, and do a search on that. I have the greatest performances in boxing history on both Julio Cesar Chavez and Meldrick Taylor, their greatest performances. I forgot to mention, uh, this was a unification fight, uh, Garrett. Meldrick was the IBF champion. Chavez was WBC champion. It was the first unification fight in the history of the super lightweight slash junior welterweight division. And it's the second biggest fight in the history of the division. The first being the first Arguello, Alexis Arguello era prior fight back in November of 1982. I did a podcast on both their, their greatest performances, Chavez and Taylor. And I also did a podcast on this fight as well. But it was only like we talked about it for 10, 15 minutes because we talked about two other great fights. Not like this where we went into a huge um, um, overview of the entire fight. All right, man. And, so- my, and my Twitter handle is Robert Silva, S-I-L-V-A, at, uh, no, at Robert Silva, S-I-L-V-A, 5768. All right, and just uh, one more uh, one more little announcement about Robert is we are smack dab in the middle of, uh, of Robert's countdown of the uh, top super featherweights in boxing history. We just posted his uh, his third best, his third greatest, which is Azuma Nelson, and we will uh, post another one early next week, and then we'll get to number one soon thereafter. All right, Robert, thanks for hanging out. Hey, they, hey! Once again, Double G, thank you, man. I, I I'll, every time I come on, I appreciate, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. No problem. We appreciate it as well. All right, take care. All right, thanks to Crystal. Thanks to Robert. I am Double G. We will see you when we see you. Peace out.